So last week we started asking the question, what does it take to revive God's church? And we ended up asking a much larger question um, that Matt was in some ways alluding to. What are the forces that drive history itself and in the vast span of history in certain directions? And we saw in Ezra chapter 1, the Bible's answer to that question is very simple but very profound. God. God rules over history. Jesus, says the New Testament, rules over all things for the church. God moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, and he did it to fulfill his promise and his purpose to restore his people to their homeland and in the wider picture to have a people for himself from every tribe and every nation and innumerable people gathered at the end of eternity, at the end of of time, uh, worshipping him and enjoying his presence. God rules over history for that great purpose. And alongside the big story, there is an assurance in Scripture that God rules on the little things. God rules over Britain now. God rules over Oxford. God rules over Magdalen Road Church. God rules over you. God can and does move your heart for his great purposes. Well, that's uh, last week. Ezra 1 establishes that broad framework for all that happens in this book of Ezra. We are not the victims of blind historical forces. We're ruled over by a God who is determined to fulfill his purposes. Having established that framework, we're going to ask that question again in a more specific way. What is it What does it take to revive God's church, for God's church to thrive? Um, Remember, Matt's already reminded us, the book of Ezra describes the return of God's people from Israel, from exile, and it describes their efforts to reform themselves as God's people. And we noticed, noticed last week that Ezra describes... Israel sort of on an evolutionary path, so to speak. Gone are the days when it was a, a, a kingdom with a king in a secure land. When, when uh, Israel returns, she has to learn to be a people of faith in a hostile world. And as such, she is being prepared to become the church. That will take some hundreds of years and the arrival of Jesus before, the, for, before God's church springs into being of people from every tribe and nation. But here, in anticipation, Israel is starting to learn what it means to be a church. So um, uh, this book of Ezra, then, is very significant for us and very helpful for us because what they are learning is what we need to learn as we uh, uh, learn to be God's church together. The second lesson in um, uh, Ezra chapter 3, the second answer to that question, what does it take to revive God's people, God's uh, church, is very simple. Worship comes before building. (coughs) That's what we're going to see this morning. There's something 
something really quite surprising that happens in Ezra chapter 3. The people return into the land. There are lots of enemies around them, that's very clear. The city and the temple are in ruins, but they don't first rebuild the city walls for security or rebuild the temple. Rather, they set up an exposed, vulnerable altar in the ruins of the temple in the midst of these enemies and begin offering sacrifices. And that is really important for us to understand. God's people are revived. God's people are re-established, not by establishing good institutions of government, not by re-establishing security behind their, their high walls, but by focusing people on the core essentials of their faith. Worship comes before building. And just in passing, I can't, I can't resist mentioning that that is actually part of a much wider pattern, um, as I see it at least, in the development of human societies as a whole. Some people suggest human societies thrive simply um, through their access to resources, for instance. That's the thesis of Jared Diamond's book, Guns, Germs and Steel. He um, suggests that actually um, uh, human, human culture grew simply because there were appropriate plants and other resources around in certain areas and human culture didn't grow in other areas because there weren't appropriate seed plants and so on. Other people suggest that, um, uh, that, that healthy institutions such as banks and good government and democracy and education enable societies to th- Thrive. Hence, all the energy that is put, put in the, around the world now in trying to form those good institutions in, uh, uh, in countries around the world. And all of those have their role, but more foundational to the thriving of any society is, 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 is a mood, a set of values, an ethos. Banking only thrives in an environment of trust and reliability and honesty, as we've seen recently. Democracy only works where most people have uh, a reasonably sound sense of justice. Mahmoud Ahmadinejad in Iran has been elected democratically, as was Hitler. In the long run, you see, there's something more foundational than those other things that enables people to thrive. It is, it is ideas. It is values. In his book, The Victory of Reason, the um, sociologist Rodney Stark actually amasses considerable evidence responding to Jared Diamond's uh, thesis um, to, to make the case that ideas trump geography. Indeed, he insists specifically that Christianity, the ideas of Christianity, paved the way for the development of European democracy and banking and industry and so on. It is ideas and values and fundamental heart commitments that actually shape human society. So, back to Ezra 3. Ezra 3 is a specific example of that wider principle here applied to the people of God. It is going to be re-establishing their values. 
getting clear the, their, their, their ideas about God, orienting their fundamental heart attitudes, which will enable God's people to thrive. They can start building later. First, they must learn to worship. Verses 1 to 6 of Ezra chapter 3 describe their worship. And the first um, three verses indeed describes the preparations for their worship. When the seventh month came and the Israelites settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Jozadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates, began to to build the altar of God of Israel, to sacrifice burnt offerings on it, in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. In verse 1, note, they are united. Literally, they come together as one man. It's a fascinating anticipation, it seems to me, of of Ephesians 2, verse 15, where the Apostle Paul says that Jesus' purpose was to create in himself one new man, which is his church, a united people of God. Would be lovely to um, simply assert that uh, visible unity is absolutely um, central to all people who claim the name of Christians. Sadly, even from the time of the New Testament, heresies um, have uh, risen in God's church, and uh, divisions are uh, unavoidable. But the basic principle of unity amongst God's true people remains, and particularly unity in the local church. Unity, especially across uh, racial divides, is emphasised in the in the New Testament. It was lovely last last night to see people from cultures very far removed from these aisles trying to get their heads round uh, uh, the eccentricities of a Burns Night Kaylee. It was, it was great fun. And uh, we, as a church, as Dan's already mentioned, are in the process over the next few years of, of, of um, uh, multiplying, we pray, into three churches. And there is a grieving associated with that. There's a grieving in my heart and in Judy's as we contemplate for the sake of the gospel going and establishing uh, uh, a new work in the centre of the city. And we must not let that, that multiplication pain for the gospel overflow into disunity. It's my, my, my prayer, and we are working hard on it, and Dan has, has, has mentioned, for instance, the training day, and there are other events. We had a student uh, uh, weekend away um, in cooperation with Woodstock Road. It is my prayer that within Oxford, particularly the free churches, but across into the, uh, into the evangelical Anglican churches as well, there would just be a network of united relationships as God's people in different parts of the city work together for the glory of Jesus. They came together as one man, says Ezra 3. 
Their worship then was united and obedient. In verses 2 and 4, we find Ezra specifically mentioning that they, they, they set up their worship in accordance with what is written. God had prescribed how the people should worship and they obeyed his prescription. For us today, there is enormous flexibility. We don't have to meet in a special sacred building, hence we're here. Um, there, are, there, are, there are simply certain broad principles as what it means to gather together and worship. We need to hear the word of God. We need to sing God's praises. We need to pray together. We need to, we need to function together as the body of Christ. And those, those, uh, uh, those things can be, uh, can be embodied in different ways. Cowley Church community is a, is a, a household-based group that we pray will become. Uh, a church, and that is as legitimate an expression of church as Magdalen Road, uh, Road Church. There is great flexibility, but we go back to Scripture to work to find the basic principles. They worshipped as united people. They worshipped as obedient people, and they worshipped as courageous people. Verse three. Um, despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundations and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Courage is absolutely vital for God's people. I think sometimes we, we, we don't recognize our cowardice. It can be cowardice that makes us choose where we worship, for instance rather than, than actually seek the Lord about the, uh, which church we should join, even if that requires a bit of courage and a bit of sacrifice. Sometimes it's cowardice as much as avarice that makes us choose the secure, well-paid job than the insecure, not-so-well-paid job that we actually, if we're honest, sense God might be calling us to take. It can be cowardice in the, in the student who chooses to uh, um, miss church on a Sunday just to completely to fine-tune their essay rather than put the worship of, of God and gathering with his people as the highest priority. Can God look after their essay? Oh, yes, he can. One of the shocking things in Scripture is that in the end, cowards can't worship God. Revelation 21 describes a group of kinds of excluded people. And one of the shocking elements of that is that the cowards are outside of God's kingdom. Now, you have to be courageous to worship God. You have to be prepared to say, I know the rest of the world thinks I'm an idiot, but I'm going to have the courage to devote my God, myself to God. I know the rest of the world would like to threaten me and say that if I waste who knows how many man hours of my life 
um, on church, then I will not. Uh, uh, I will not thrive. But I won't believe that, and I will serve the living God. The preparation for worship then required unity, obedience, and courage. And then um, verses 4 to uh, 6 then start to describe the elements of worship that they engaged in. And most prominent, mentioned several times, are burnt offerings. For instance, verse 6. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. There are various sacrifices in the Old Testament law, but perhaps the burnt offerings are central. An animal would be killed, its body burned on the altar. It served as a substitute The implication was very clear. The people who brought that animal um, deserved death because of their sin before the infinitely holy God. But the bull or the ram was killed and destroyed in their stead. The New Testament makes it very plain that that was a very imperfect provision for the sin of God's people, not least because, as is indicated here, the sacrifices had to be done again and again and again. They looked forward to Jesus, who would die on the cross for our sins once and only once, because Jesus, as the Son of God, was able finally to pay for our sins fully. Because he as a human could pay a human penalty for our sins. And he as God could pay could be God paying the penalty. So uh, um, sacrifice was absolutely at the heart of their worship as they came together. And it must be at the heart of ours. A recognition that none of us comes here because somehow because of our nobility of character. Every single one of us comes here not because of how great we are but because of how great Jesus is. Not because of what we can offer but because of what we need. What we need is God's forgiveness through Jesus. Jesus' death on the cross, then, is absolutely central to all authentic worship. It's absolutely central to enabling God's people to thrive. And then the second element uh, uh, of this um, uh, worship that they engage in um, focuses around the Feast of Tabernacles. I don't know whether you noticed at that, verse 4, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. The Tabernacles was uh, one of the three great feasts of the year, and it, and it reminded them of their wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. After they had been 
delivered from slavery in Egypt, but before they entered the promised land. And although Israel is now back in the promised land, once a year they would leave their sort of stable homes and go and live in these sort of makeshift little booths or, or, or tabernacles, both to remind them of what God had done in the, in the future, but also to enact in one sense that they're still on a journey. The journey's not complete. They still long for the journey to be completed, and it will not be completed simply by dwelling in the land. Now, there are people on a journey to the new creation. Once a year, they would remind themselves of that journey. Actually, after, uh, dur- during, uh, after the time of Ezra, or during and after the time of Ezra, there are certain elements of that fe- festival of tabernacles that started to become um, prominent, which get quite a prominent mention in John's Gospel. John's Gospel has a whole central section, chapters 5 to 7, uh, no, to 9, based around Jesus' visit to, the festi- uh, uh, um, to Israel, Jerusalem, and the Festival of Tabernacles. And by Jesus' time, there have been so- certain associations with tabernacles. For instance, there was a, a water-pouring ceremony in the Feast of Tabernacles, because more than once, as the people had wandered through the wilderness, God had provided them with water, and so they celebrated that in the, in the Feast of Tabernacles. So it's not an accident that Jesus, um, um, uh, that John tells us this, on the last and greatest day of the Festival of Tabernacles, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Jesus is the fulfillment of that refreshment that they celebrated. And tabernacles became associated with light as well, because God had gone ahead of them as they wandered in the wilderness in a, uh, by, by a, a pillar of, they, they'd been led by a pillar of fire. So again, it is no accident that Jesus, again, in the Feast of Tabernacles says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Israelites here, celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles, but they were looking forward, says John, to Jesus. We, too, are on a journey, just like those Israelites. We haven't yet reached our final destination, but just as the Israelites remembered, we have nourishment. As we come to Jesus, as thirsty people, he, 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 he uh, provides us with living water. As we come to Jesus in need of light, he, the light of the world, gives us that. And notice that that worship is celebratory. They kept multiple sacred festivals, it says in verse 5. And uh, notice as well, lastly, that their, that their worship includes free will offerings. That's there in verse 5. They, they, um, 
presented new moon sacrifices, sacrifices for all the appointed sacred festivals of the Lord, as well as those brought as free will offerings to the Lord. Most worship in Old Testament Israel was not voluntary. It was obligatory. You couldn't belong to Israel if you didn't do it. But some was voluntary. Particularly, there were drink offerings, which were a kind of libation that could be poured out on top of your sacrifice to indicate your, your total commitment of yourself, not just to do the minimum necessary to stay in the people of God, but because out of love for God, to in a free way give oneself to him. And on two occasions in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul describes himself as being poured out like one of those drink offerings. Philippians 2.17 and 2 Timothy 4.6, if you want to take notes. His life, he's saying, goes beyond the minimum necessary. His life is a free will offering. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, says Paul. This is your spiritual act of worship. So here we go. Here's here's how we will be restored people. People who remember the sacrificial death of Jesus for our sins, who paid for them all. People who see ourselves as on a journey like the Feast of Tabernacles. A journey where Jesus provides water and light, refreshment and illumination. Where we celebrate the extraordinary things that Jesus has done. And where we give ourselves even beyond that in free will offerings. Worship comes before building. All this happens before they've even started to think about their security, before they've started to build anything like a temple. There they are saying, this is what will reform them, us. And this is what will, 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 will enable us as a church to thrive. As we put, it, put, put that first, um, before I came to Maudlin Road, there were numbers of people um, who had um, considered being Maudlin Road's pastor, and one of the things that put them off was the inadequate building. We still have it. Um, and we would love to, 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 make, to have a building that we can meet in. But one of my, my real convictions 16, 17 years ago was that we couldn't define the future prospects for Magdalen Road Church, simply on the basis of bricks and mortar. Worship comes before building. I was absolutely convinced that as God's people gather together, hear the word of God, are, are lifted up in worship to God and mobilized to serve him in all sorts of ways, then God's people would thrive. And so it's been. And for you as an individual as well. Worship comes before building the securities and structures of your life. 
If you are a Christian here, you need to hear the words of Jesus. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things will be given to you as well. Jesus was absolutely clear. If you put getting on the housing ladder, living in the right place, finding an appropriate life partner, getting our family established... Getting a secure job as a sort of prerequisite that I must get in place before I start to give myself with all my heart to God, then frankly, you never will. You build the altar first on the bare open ground, and the building and the walls will come in time. And if you're not a Christian here yet, that is absolutely central for you. I don't know how many people I meet who say, yeah, I'll consider these things seriously when? When my life is more in order. When this, that or the other hurdle has been got over. When I have a bit more time because frankly work or study or whatever consumes me. And if that continues to be your attitude, you will never find Jesus. But if you are prepared to put him first, and remember what Jesus said about that water, anyone who is thirsty, let him come to me, and I will give them living water. Remember what he said about himself as the light, I am the light of the world. If you fit in the category of anyone, if you fit in the category of the world, you can come and find Jesus. You can begin to worship him. Let that worship be foundational for your life. And then other things will come as well. Worship comes before building. And then just to finish our time, just um, a little more briefly. There is fruit that comes from that worship. There is a time to build. Verse 7, they gave money to the masons and carpenters and gave food and drink and olive oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa as authorized by King Cyrus of Persia. There is a time to put some form and some shape and a little bit of institutional solidity around that worship. As long as we get it in the right order, there is nothing wrong with that. There is nothing wrong with us as a church seeking to uh, have a more adequate building that we can, uh, we can worship in on a Sunday. Notice that it was costly. They gave money to the masons and carpenters. It does cost to build these things. Notice that it was hard work, verse 8 in the second month of the second year after the arrival of the house of, uh, of God, at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel and Shealtiel 
and the rest of the people began the work, they appointed Levites, 20 years old and older, to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. In different moments in Israelite history, the moment when you you, you graduate to being a, a fully sort of responsible Levite varied. Sometimes it was 30, in fact that seems to have been the ideal. In other moments it was 25, and at moments of extreme need, it seems, they brought it down to 20. And this is one of those moments... There's lots of work to be done here. So let's qualify the Levites at age 20 and let them get into into the work. Yes, it is costly. It is hard work. And its fruit is absolutely fascinating. Let me read uh, from verse 11 onwards. Um, With praise and thanksgiving they sang to the Lord, He is good, His love uh, towards Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads, who had seen the former temple, wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping. Because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. Here you have then the younger people saying, this is great. And the older people saying, the former days were far better. It seems to me that they were right, probably, those older people to weep. But wrong to look back with starry eyes at the great temple of the past. Because history had taught them that they could not sustain that kind of kingdom. That's why the temple had been destroyed. That's why they'd gone into exile. It would be a fool who would say, let's go back to square one and just start again. Because the same problem will happen again. The people weeping were right to be frustrated and disappointed and and sad at the, at the sort of paltry effort that stood before them. But what they should have been doing was looking forward. Looking forward to what God might do at some point in the future. And you see, Christians will find themselves being people like that as well. There is enormous joy in being gathered here as God's people. There is a great privilege in enjoying that, that unity and worshipping together. And, and, you know, I and many other people have been enormously nourished by life in this church over time. But frankly, it's not perfect, is it? Frankly, you know, it's shot through with difficulties and sin and all sorts of other things that make it look pathetic sometimes. And we should weep. But not weep looking back to some imaginary time in the past when churches were wonderful. Weep as we look forward to what God promised that we've seen over previous weeks, a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem big enough to hold that innumerable throng, glorious in crystal and emeralds and jewels, and with God at its heart, 
wiping away the tears from every eye. That picture of Ezra 3, you see, is an appropriate picture for us. If we do not weep sometimes, we've got no idea of what God has in store for us in the future. But if we do not rejoice sometimes, we've got no idea of what we've been saved from. As God has gathered us together, as God has rescued us, as God has begun to transform our hearts, as God has begun to make us new. Worship comes before building. And as you build, at great cost and with hard labour, as you build, expect to celebrate and weep in equal measure. What is it that enables God's people to thrive and grow? It is knowing Jesus. Everything else comes after that. If you don't know him yet, then put that as your highest priority and let him build on that. If you do know him, then that is the most precious thing in your life. Rejoice, even while you weep.